listening to KSKQ 89.5 FM in Ashland, Oregon, and 94.1 FM in Medford, Oregon. Well, it's the fourth Friday of the month, and that means it's time for Literary Ashland. I'm Michael Neiman. And I'm Ed Battistella. And we don't have a whole lot of announcements, actually really only one today, and that is that the Willamette Writers Monthly Meeting will be on April 7th, starting at 9.30 a.m., at the Central Point City Hall. There will probably also be an afternoon meeting uh, you'll have to go to the website to find out more. All right. Well, today our very special guest is Pepper Trail. Um, Pepper is a naturalist, a photographer, a writer, and a world traveler who's lived in Ashland since 1994. He works as a biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and in his spare time leads natural history trips to every corner of the world including Jackson County, an exotics part of the world indeed. Um, Pepper is a regular essayist for the Jefferson Journal and for High Country News, and his writing has been included in several anthologies, including Intricate Homeland and What What the River Brings, Oregon River Poems. In 2009, he published Shifting Patterns, Meditations on Climate Change in Oregon's Rogue Valley, a collection of essays and poems with photographs by Jim Chamberlain and by Pepper himself. Um, His poetry has appeared in the Jefferson Monthly, Windfall, Kyoto Journal, Borderlands, Comstock Review, and many other publications. Um, And his work as a forensic ornithologist has been featured in Audubon Magazine and in National Geographic, most recently, just a couple of months ago. So, welcome, Pepper. Yes, welcome. It's it's great to have you. Uh, great to have you with us. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your background. How did you find yourself attracted to both writing and science? Well, kind of a twisting tale. Science came first for sure. Uh, I grew up uh, as a farm kid in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes region, um, and. My folks had a 100-acre old abandoned farm, pretty much, surrounded by working farms. And so I grew up just wandering the countryside. Uh, My dad was a naturalist, and so I was a bird watcher as a kid and just uh, loved the outdoors. So I always wanted to be an ornithologist, and when I found out you actually could be one, uh, that's what I set out to be. And I was lucky enough to live not far from Cornell University, which is the best college in the country for ornithology, and mm. uh, I was able to go there and ultimately got my PhD there. So, uh, But I was always a, a big reader as well and loved books and sort of found my way into writing uh, through my love of science and my love of literary nonfiction. Okay. Well, Yesterday, you did a presentation on Charles Darwin at the SOU Library, which I unfortunately had to miss, but Ed here was able to see it. How do you prepare for that kind of a performance? Because it's different from being an ornithologist or or writing a poem. Uh, Yeah, it certainly is different. I'm, you know, like, uh, probably like a lot of people, I have a a bit of a a ham in me, and uh, so... I, as Ed mentioned in the introduction, I do lead uh, natural history tours around the world, and I give lectures uh, during those trips. And uh, on one trip, when I was with my wife, Deborah Kutnick, she, we heard a lecture by another 
presenter who was giving it in the persona of a famous person. And she said, you could, you could do that for, for Darwin. You love Darwin so much. And I'd just been reading a very exhaustive biography of him with many quotes from his writings and his letters. And I thought, well, I, I could put these quotes together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I did. Uh, did it several times on these tours. And uh, since then have sort of polished it a bit. And uh, now I'm giving it a little bit more widely. But it's a lot of fun. It gives me my, uh, an opportunity both to educate people about Darwin and his, and his life and his personality, but also to... Uh, to scratch that acting itch that a lot of us have a little bit. Okay. Yeah, and, and I, you really made Darwin come alive, and I, I learned a lot about his life that I, I hadn't known or had only sort of come across in little bits and pieces. And I have to say, you you did a, you you look a little bit like Charles Darwin <laughs> with the hat on, and when you put on the British accent, it, you, you, you could be him. Well, I, I try. That's what I'm going for, so thanks for that. So. Well, your your day job is as a forensic ornithologist, uh, and I was wondering if that provided some material for some of your poems. How that um, how that how those two works? I, I guess dovetail is kind of a bad pun, but how they come together? Yeah, it certainly has provided some inspiration for a few poems. Uh, the The work I do at the forensics lab, what we basically do is we receive evidence of wildlife crimes. And so mm-hmm. as the ornithologist, I'm the bird expert and I identify dead birds or other bits and pieces of birds that uh, perhaps are being sold or are involved in wildlife crimes. And so it's uh, pretty sad. Uh, my What I look at on a daily basis uh, is the result of humanity's inhumanity to the natural world. So uh, a lot of it is difficult for me to write about, to be honest, and to make into art, um, mm. to, to, to move past the emotional response. It, it's a complicated thing I have to do because, of course, as a scientist, I have to be very objective and non-emotional. And then as a poet, I have to connect with some emotional truth without becoming sentimental or maudlin or, or simply uh, <laughs> full of rage, you know, different emotions you can have. So I found it tough to be honest, to mm-hmm. translate those experiences into uh, good poems. I've certainly written some bad ones about it, but uh, I have a few that I'm pleased with, but uh, it's not the easiest thing to write about, actually. I'm, I'm much more able to draw on my appreciation for the natural world when I'm out hiking and when I'm out you know, enjoying the, the actual facts of nature to translate mm-hmm. that into poetical form. Yeah, but it sounds like you've sort of thought about this dichotomy between the the poetry of the of man's inhumanity to the natural world and the sort of glory of nature that you see on hikes. So. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, definitely something I think about a lot. Mm. And that's at the forensic laboratory you're in Ashland, right? right? The yeah. Fish and Wildlife Organ. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Would you read us a a poem? Uh, I'd be happy to. Um, I've put out a couple of small collections, Mm -hmm. uh, and one of them is called Cascade Siskiyou Poems. It's kind of a thematic collection of poems that were written entirely in the Cascade Siskiyou National Monument, which is uh, Mm. near near Ashland, just up to the south and and, uh, east of us. And I've been very involved in attempts to conserve that area, uh, which culminated in it it becoming a national monument in 2000 and and then was expanded uh, in... uh, 2017. 
So this volume of poems is all about places and experiences I've had in that monument. And uh, another thing that I think a lot about as a scientist and as a human being is, is climate change and the impact of climate change. And uh, so this poem uh, addresses that. Uh, it's called Madrone Dance, after that uh, beautiful tree, the madrone that we have so commonly in our area. Madrone Dance. No tree standing still moves as you move. No limbs so bare, so sleek, so suited for the dance. You crouch and stride, balance and curve, arms aloft, the art of gesture is yours, all yours. And the pines stand around you, stiff with scandalized admiration. O oh, Madrone, dance now, dance as never, dance up the mountainside, fast and faster than ever you have done. Use the birds, all of them, the flocking robins and the waxwings, the starlings and the thrushes. In these hot days, burst with berries, send them far and wide, send them always higher, find that place wherever it is gone, still cool, but below the hardest cold, dry, but above the cracking earth. The time has come to run. Eumadrone cannot run, so dance. Hmm. Oh, wow, that's, yeah, it really, so it, yeah. it reminds us that the madrone is a sentient or mm -hmm. a, a living thing and sort of brings it, yeah. brings it to us as a, Potential dance partner, even. Huh. Yeah, they're, and so, they're so graceful. They're twisting limbs. It's, it's, uh, they always seem yeah. to be expressing something. When we first moved to Ashland and to Oregon, that was the first time I saw a madrone tree, mm -hmm. and right. I was just, I still think they are just amazing. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for that poem. Yeah, that, that was terrific. Yeah, mm -hmm. One of my poetic inspirations, certainly my uh, my favorite poets, is Gary Snyder, and, uh, and his observation of the natural world combined with his uh, studies of Buddhism and, and Zen ha are, have been very influential for me. And as you mm -hmm. said, you know, seeing the tree as a sentient being, I do try to be mindful of that, uh, of that aspect of creation whenever I'm in nature. So, yeah. In case you're just joining us, this is Literary Ashland right here on KSKQ, and we are speaking with Pepper Trail ornithologist, writer, and naturalist. And I was going to, if people want to um, find more of your poetry, where can they, um, where can they get your books? Well, uh, my books, Cascade, Siskiyou, uh, and my other small collection called Flight Time, which uh, is sort of an, uh, a double collection, some poems about bird flight, since I'm uh, so involved with birds, and other poems about flying on airplanes, because in my world travels, I spend a lot of time in airplanes, and I actually mm -hmm. find it a good place to write poems uh, hmm. away from distractions and you look out the window and you see the earth in a in that marvelous way so anyway uh, those two collections can be purchased on amazon.com and locally they're usually available at bloomsbury sometimes okay. they're temporarily out but uh, they can be bought locally there excellent that's great and well i have a sort of odd question um it's, and I have a couple of odd questions, actually, but you have a, a Ph.D. from Cornell, um, and uh, in my experience, getting a Ph.D. often makes someone a less good writer. So how did you sort of um, balance the, the, the kind of academic scientific writing and the, um, and the poetic instinct? Does one help the other, or...? 
I wouldn't say they helped. Okay, uh, me I don't neither. Know if you've heard, uh, <laughs> heard Isaac Asimov's famous uh, answer to that question. He was asked a similar question. Isaac Asimov, the great science fiction writer mm-hmm. uh, and writer of many different genres, but he was asked that question, and he said, "Well, after I got my PhD in biochemistry, uh, I had to, I had he had written several books before that. He said, in order to write my PhD in biochemistry, I had to learn to write badly enough to get a PhD." <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it's a very different kind of writing, and and it's been an interesting experience for me actually as a scientist uh, at scientific at several ornithological conferences that I've attended. I've organized poetry nights, um, and the reaction's been very interesting. There have been ex- a small cadre of very enthusiastic people who come. Who some of them write their own poems, some of them just have favorite bird poems that they would like to share. And it's been a great occasion, but there also has been quite a uh, a condescending attitude uh, mm. from a lot of scientists that like, why are you wasting your time with this? You know, this is not scientific. This is very anthropomorphic or, you know, various things that they can say. Um, but to try to answer your question, um, I I definitely, I guess I've learned how to write from, from reading. Um, I've never taken a writing course, actually never taken a formal poetry course. Um, and so I've learned to write from examples of writers who I admire, um, of whom there are many. Um, Darwin is one. I mean, Darwin was actually a, a very beautiful writer. Uh, and certainly many poets. Um, Gary Snyder um, is certainly one of them. A.R. Ammons, who was a poet at Cornell when I was there, and I actually heard him uh, read uh, is, is another inspiration. Um, so there's a lot of great examples out there, and if you're just open to them, I think anyone can can learn a lot from uh, from reading. And, and then the challenge, of course, is developing your own voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's the challenge we all writers struggle with throughout our lives. For, for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Mm-hmm. Writing about the environment... Uh, what drives that? Is it writing for appreciation, writing for advocacy, writing for reflection? How do you tackle that? It's it's all those things for mm-hmm. me. Um, I would say when I began to write, well, the first poems I wrote, and I wrote exclusively for a few years, uh, were haiku, um, mm. resulting from my studies of Zen and uh, and my deep affection for observation, just the act of observation, and to try to k- distill that into a, into sub- 17 syllables. Um, it was a very good discipline, I think, and a, a good preparation for becoming uh, a more ambitious poet. But um, So those are very descriptive. And my early longer works were probably pretty heavily descriptive as well, and a few of my I, I owe a lot to local writing groups. Uh, I'm in two different groups of poetry uh, critique folks, and, and they've been very important to me. And early on, they gently uh, they gently reminded me that uh, a poem of pure description was sometimes could succeed, but often was um, didn't contain the spark of uh, of insight that allowed other people to share the poem more deeply or to share the moment that, that inspired the poem. So so 
I've gradually tried to make my poems uh, somewhat more personal. Um, and as far as the advocacy side of it, it's um, another challenge, like I referred to a, a bit with the writing from my forensic work. Uh, I'm quite active as an environmentalist, and I'm quite um, enraged <laughs> frequently mm -hmm. by the environmental injustices and uh, destruction that I see. And again, like with the forensic material, it can be a challenge to uh, translate that strong emotion into art. And um, I, I do think I've succeeded a few times. Um, far more often, I've not succeeded, um, been too strident, or uh, so. It, it's an it's an ongoing challenge to to make art, and that's one reason why we do it, right? Mm -hmm. to, yeah. To try to meet that challenge for ourselves. I and remember. Then, and go ahead. I remember reading a, a a book by William Zinser, the political novel. It had different different sections in it about you know writing a novel that has clearly a political context. And one of the lines I remember from it: If you want to send a message, take out an ad. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's the difficulty of of writing a story that contains that advocacy without it feeling like advocacy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think if I have one mm. um, flaw or challenge, however you want to put it, as a poet, uh, it's that both from my scientific background and sort of my personality, which is a bit of a teacherly personality, uh, I, I often start a poem trying to make a point of mm -hmm. some kind. You know, it, it can be a, a political point. It could be a point just about how the world is. But uh, so it's a conscious effort for me to try to break my poems open a little bit to make them a little less linear uh, than they might be otherwise. And I write prose, too. So, you know, my essays have to be somewhat linear, right? You want you want your essays to make a point. Um, and you you want your poems to as well, but in a different way. So the, uh, the struggle between uh, telling it straight and telling it slant, you know, is, is a mm. continual uh, thing I work on. Yeah. Well, and just hearing you describe the 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 work, it, it sounds like the um, the observation and description that you've kind of worked on as a as a biologist and ornithologist have really kind of been a a, a bit of a groundwork for some of the poetry and the um, the emotion and inspiration is something that has kind of added on to that. And so it, it's interesting to hear you sort of talk about it this way, and mm -hmm. kind of. One, one of the nicest compliments I ever got from one of my writing group fellows, this is uh, Michael Jenkins, who's an excellent poet in Grants Pass and has been in a group with me for many years. I often do have facts in my poems, um, little scientific facts or natural history facts or whatever. And, uh, and Michael once said, I have no idea about this fact at all, but Pepper, if you wrote it in a poem, I believe it. <laughs> I believe that your facts are always right in a poem. And that was, uh, the scientist in me was very gratified to hear that. <laughs> That's pretty I do try to make my facts accurate if I bring them in. Mm -hmm. Well, And you also write um, nonfiction. Um, and how do you sort of fit it all together? I mean, you've got a, you've got a day job, you, you travel a bit. You, how does writing fit into your life? Uh, it comes and goes. Um, 
in terms of the essays I write, I usually are triggered by some particular uh, event. I've, I've written some stories for Jefferson Public Radio about my travels, um, and those are just sort of fun to, to write uh, descriptions of, for example, a trip I did from Tahiti to Easter Island on a, on a ship. That was a fun one to write because it was a great trip. But um, uh, the essays usually are triggered by some environmental uh, concern of mine. And the poems uh, are less easily summoned. <laughs> uh, and I often do a lot of my most productive writing when I am hiking, when I'm out in nature. And I think a lot of poets have experienced this. The rhythm of walking is very conducive to to the rhythm of poetry. And mm-hmm. so uh, a lot of the poems, especially in my book, uh, Cascade Siskiyou, began on hikes. You know, I the, the kernel of the idea came on the hike and then, of course, was refined. But um, so outs- writing outside is uh, productive for me. Well, that's good. So you've, you've got a notebook and sort of keep it with you when you hike and you're not one of these wake up at 4 a.m. with a cup of <laughs> coffee and <laughs> sit at the computer for a while, guys. Yeah, not at all. No, uh, I've, I I usually I don't have much luck with prompts in general. Um, I do in many, not every year because of my schedule, but in in many years I do the April poem a day thing, the mm-hmm. NaPoRIMO poem a day, partly because I'm not all that productive as a poet because of all my conflicting activities, and it forces me to like write a poem a day. And so for that, I do often use prompts. Um, and I would say, you know, out of the 30 or 31 poems I write in April every year, maybe two or three are are worth something so maybe that's you know two or three more than i would have gotten otherwise but in general uh i I don't respond to prompts or or seek out i I guess i have the feeling that if you have to if you have to force yourself to write a poem in a way if you have to go looking for a reason to write a poem that just doesn't work for me i I need Mm -hmm. to have it come from inside Mm -hmm. this is this is probably a a um reflection of not having been not having suffered through writing courses (laughs) probably true (laughs) okay uh do you have favorite environmental writers that come to mind uh well yeah um a lot of them um certainly john muir is a touchstone for Mm -hmm. uh for uh, american environmental writing uh and i i love thoreau and emerson both uh of of living writers um Peter Matheson is a particular mm-hmm. idol of mine. Um, I love all of his work. Um, John McPhee uh, is a great uh, writer on all manner of things, but um, his his writing on nature and geology are are good. Anybody who can make geology riveting is uh, <laughs> is yes. quite a quite a writer in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those are those are a few who come to mind right off the bat. I was going to say there are a lot of geologists in the Rogue Valley, so we're, you know, you got to be careful. Got to be careful. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, well, uh, do you have any advice for writers out there? Uh, I mean, other than not taking writing classes and things like that. <laughs> well, uh, certainly to read. Um, you know, I, I'm another thing that makes me more productive as a poet. When I go through a productive period of writing poetry, it's invariably. Um, a result of reading poetry, as, as a for, of, of making the time for myself to sit down and, and read. Um, and it's not that I am emulating what I'm reading or even uh, 
even would want to necessarily. I mean, there's a lot of poets who I greatly admire and would love to be able to write like them, but just the inspiration that I get from their words and the way that they put things together, I think, is very uh, important. Um, and I would, I guess I would say uh, a couple things. One is um, to, to write what you know um, and not be afraid of facts. I mean, I do think there's sometimes poets feel like facts are dead and, and they're not lyrical or they're not the topic of poems that should be more emotional. But uh, And obviously there needs to be emotion in a poem, but I do think facts and specificity are very important. Um, so I would recommend that. And finally, I would say don't be afraid. You know, um, mm. don't feel unworthy. Uh, you know, certainly none of us... Uh, write as well as we would like to write, and none of us write as well as our idols do, but that doesn't mean we can't produce something that is important to ourselves, and, and maybe we'll speak to other people. Yeah. And I think you've done some terrific work, so. Yeah. Thank Definitely. you. Thanks. Is there anything you're working on right now that you would like to share? Uh, well, I don't, I didn't bring anything new. I am, I'm continuing to write, and I'm thinking it's about time for me to put together another collection, but, uh, I haven't found the time to do that yet. Mm -hmm. um, April's almost here. So. <laughs> yep, I know. Maybe I can get a chapbook together for April. Uh, actually, that reminds me. Hopefully, I'll be reading uh, at Bloomsbury on April 5th with uh, the great uh, Northwest poet Jerry Mardian, uh, who's, mm -hmm. in, uh, who's based in Eureka and uh, in, in the California coast. And uh, he's coming to town, and uh, he and I will hopefully be reading at Bloomsbury on April 5th. So uh, I should definitely have some new things for that. Cool. Very much. Wonderful. Right. April 5th at Bloomsbury. Okay. Good. Well, you have any final thoughts or questions that you want I to just, pose? Just that I, I've really sort of enjoyed the uh, the range of your work. Essays, yeah. the, the Darwin work, the, mm -hmm. the poetry, and, and of course the crime fighting as well, which um, it, it's always nice to see that, see that sort of all come together and somebody be able to do the kinds of things they love. Well, thanks. Yeah, that brings up a question. Have you ever been tempted to do to to write crime fiction in the context <laughs> of the work that you do at the at the Forensic Institute? Uh not not fiction. Uh mm -hmm. not fiction, but um I've been approached by a few people uh literary types who are who think it would be uh there'd be a book in my a nonfiction book in my experiences as mm -hmm. a forensic ornithologist. Um, yeah. And I think that that may well be true. Um, there's a lot of very strange things I've been involved with from uh, tiny love charms uh, made out of the dead bodies of hummingbirds to, mm. uh, to Amazonian feather art that costs tens of thousands of dollars uh, to all sorts of strange shamanistic things uh, from around the world. So there's a lot of stories to be told there and maybe... Maybe in the future I'll find time to put them down. Well, this is something for us to look forward to. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. So thank you, Pepper, for coming in and, and talking to us about your work, your poems, and all the other writing that you do. It's been wonderful. Oh, well, thanks so much for having yeah, me. It's been great to have you here. Yep. All right, that's it for this month, and we'll see you on the fourth Friday of next month. Until then, good words to you. Bye. Bye. Thank you.